The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our series on the physical property of stickiness. Uh, Maybe you didn't know we were going to do a part three. Maybe we didn't know we were going to do a part three, but here we are back to finish it out today. Now, in part one of this series, we talked about starches and sticky foods, most notably sticky rice, a.k.a. sweet rice, a.k.a. glutinous rice, a, a wonderful food stuff that has a lot of interesting chemical properties. And uh, and this sort of came up in the context of uh, my inspiration for this series, which was, uh, you know, my, my young child is uh, eating f- fruits and fruit-based uh, foods, and those tend to, like, leave mysterious sticky patches all over the house now. Um, but so we, we did that in part one. In part two, we talked about the unbelievably sticky feet of geckos, and we also talked about a chapter in a book I've been reading called Sticky, The Secret Science of Surfaces by Laurie Winkless, which is out just this year. And uh, this chapter talked about different ways that adhesive materials actually stick to one another. Seems like it is much more complicated and less well understood than you might guess. That's right. The One of the uh, realities we, we keep coming up against in this uh, series is that, yeah, the word sticky covers a lot of ground. And so, um, you know, if you, you can't you can't just narrow it down and say, oh, well, this is sticky and this is something else. Like what kind of sticky, what flavor of sticky are you talking about? It's a very general term. And as we come back to explore the topic for one more episode, I'm going to take us in a much less physical and more metaphorical direction because I got very interested in the idea of sticky mental content. What makes a memory or an idea stick in the mind? And of course, this is a question that could be looked at a ton of different ways. I just isolated one facet of this issue uh, because it was so interesting to me. What I want to talk about is something known as flashbulb memories. Rob, I wonder if you have similar experiences to this. I remember when I was young, hearing my parents and friends of theirs, people my parents' age, you know, they'd be talking at a party or get together or something. And I remember them saying almost this exact sentence. I remember exactly where I was when I heard about the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, absolutely. I, re- I remember hearing this sort of thing growing up. And then, of course, post uh, post 9-11, uh, there, there were all new versions of this. Everyone, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people had a, a similar take. I remember exactly where I was what I was wearing, what breakfast cereal I was, the cereal I was eating when this occurred, right? Exactly right. So in these types of memories, you find out about some public event that has happened, and you seem to have a memory of that moment of finding out that is just rich with incredible vivid detail, and you have extreme confidence about the accuracy of those details. 
I remember my parents saying this about the Kennedy assassination or uh, people my parents were talking to. Uh, people our age, like you say, might have similar memories about the 9-11 attacks. And if you're one of these people and you have a memory of this kind, you can almost like go back to that moment bodily right now. You remember exactly where you were, who you were with, how you heard about it, and so forth. Uh, I, I actually do have a, a very clear and strong memory of finding out about the 9-11 attacks in high school. I remember um, we were gathering for some kind of morning school assembly, and I saw a friend of mine, and I sat down next to him, and he mentioned that he, he had heard something. I think he think he said on the radio or something, but he said mentioned he had heard something about a plane hitting the World Trade Center. And I have no way of knowing now if this memory is actually accurate, but it feels extremely accurate. It has stuck in my mind like glue. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I have similar memories, but I also feel like we've covered um, uh, the um, we, we've covered false memories enough on the show before. And we've discussed this exact scenario uh, re regarding um, these these memories that we think we can trust, but ultimately upon close scrutiny, uh, you know, the details fall apart. Like that's enough to where I really, I probably distrust these memories more compared to other memories just because I know of, uh, the, the sort of thing that goes on with them. Right. Uh, so I'm, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to really even state that I was wearing this or I was with so-and-so. And I even, I even, even more recent examples of this sort of thing. Like I remember where, where I was when I heard about, uh, the, the last presidential election results, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but when I when I pause to think about it for more than a moment and ask myself, well, do you really can you really name all the people that were there? Do you remember exactly where you were uh, when you were finishing up this kayak uh, excursion and then you uh, somebody checked their phone and found the news? Uh, no, I, I'm not that confident in the memory. Well, yeah, I guess the irony is that given how much we read about memory research and how much we've been primed by <laughs> all of these studies finding you know, the illusory confidence people have in things. Uh, yeah, may maybe the fact that it feels so, so uh, sticky in my brain makes me actually more suspicious of it. But people in general, I, I think, are mostly not suspicious of memories like this. People in general think, well, yeah, maybe memory is inaccurate sometimes. But one I'm absolutely certain about is I remember hearing about the Kennedy assassination or, you know, decades and decades later, or I remember where I was when I heard about 9-11. That is like the highest quality memory in my brain. And yet, given neither of these historical examples, you know, 9-11 uh, or, or the Kennedy assassination, do we usually have vivid, elaborate memories about other events the same week. You know, if you ask somebody who strongly remembers exactly how they heard about the Kennedy assassination, they don't have detailed memories of what they had for lunch the day before or what they did after school the day after. So what causes the details of a specific memory to become sticky in this way, where it stays in your mind for, you know, 60 years later and still feels like it's in such incredibly vivid detail, like you know that you're remembering it exactly right? And why do these memories seem so accurate compared to our forgetfulness of other memories from around the same time in our lives? And why do these kinds of intense, detailed snapshot memories tend to be associated? Uh, of course, we have similarly intense memories about other types of things. But why is a category for these intense, vivid memories learning about a big, momentous public event, often a public tragedy? Uh, another often cited uh, example is the Challenger explosion. And it turns out psychologists have actually studied this phenomenon and have looked into these questions. They have firmer answers to some of these questions than other ones. Uh, these types of memories have a special name. They're called flashbulb memories. So I think the idea behind the name is it's kind of like, uh, you know, there there is a flash photograph taken in a darkened room. So everything around it is dark and obscure, but the flash goes off and a picture of a particular moment is captured and then frozen in memory, perhaps for the rest of your life. In fact, I think if we could ask JJ to do this, uh, JJ, can you hit us with just the, the sound effect of a flash bulb? because uh, many of you haven't heard it in real life at this point or haven't in a long time, but you've probably heard it in movies, often with kind of a freeze frame black and white uh, effect, which does kind of get to the heart of it, like the idea that here is something that has occurred and it is just you know, flashbulb sound effect. It is, uh, it is set in your mind and it will never change. This is a pristine memory of what is occurring. 
Okay, so time to mention a source. Uh, I've been reading a paper collecting and summarizing the research on flashbulb memories. This paper is called Flashbulb Memories, published in Current Directions in Psychological Science in the year 2016. And this is by William Hurst and Elizabeth A. Phelps. So this is trying to look at all of the research that had been done up till that point uh, and see what conclusions could be drawn. So the term flashbulb memories traces back to a pair of researchers named Roger Brown and James Kulik, who studied the phenomenon and published uh, important research on it in the year 1977. So to briefly separate out just so there's no confusion what flashbulb memories are and what they are not. Flashbulb memories are memories of the circumstances in which one learned about a public event. So it's when you found out about a public event. And this differentiates it from firsthand memories, like the kind of memory where uh, you remember an event that happened to you personally, something you were there for, rather than something that you heard about or read about. So flashbulb memories are kind of interesting in that they straddle two different kinds of memory at the same time. In one sense, they are autobiographical because they're directly asking you to remember things about where you were and who you were with and what happened to you and what you felt. But they concern that that situation that you're remembering in your own life is elicited by a public event. It's not something that happened directly to you, but a moment of gaining information, of learning about something that happened to other people. Another distinction is because they're autobiographical, flashbulb memories are different from what are called event memories in the literature. That name can be a little confusing because it's like if you have a memory of an event in your life, that sounds like that would be an event memory. But what this refers to is information about the public event itself. So you might have your flashbulb memory of finding out about the Kennedy assassination. That's where you were, how you heard about it, all that stuff. But then also there would be public event memories, which would be things like the date that it happened, what time of day, the city it took place in, what type of car Kennedy was riding in, the name of the alleged assassin, and so forth. This is like information about the eliciting event. That's also a different kind of memory. So the flashbulb memory is an autobiographical memory about yourself in the circumstance of learning about this important public event. And examples of events that have been studied for uh, creating flashbulb memories include assassinations and other politically charged uh, public events. Uh, also, things with a more positive connotation, the uh, the paper cited like relevant World Cup victories, like if your country wins the World Cup. Uh, also, events like the fall of the Berlin Wall and also natural disasters like major earthquakes. Okay. But at least some positive things thrown in the mix. Okay. A lot more negative things than positive things have been studied. And I, I want to mm-hmm. talk about that later because that may be interesting. I wonder if there are differences in how those things are recorded. I guess the news that's worth reporting is more often bad than good. Right, right. So Brown and Kulik, the two researchers who did this important early work on flashbulb memories, argued that even though these public events don't happen to us personally, they involve so much emotion that the brain records them kind of as if they did happen to us personally in the moment that we find out about them. So we have these unusual levels of accurate and exquisite detail. So ultimately, they sort of said these memories seem to be reliable and unchanging, like a photograph. In fact, the words they use, which are quoted in this review paper, they say these uh, memories were, quote, unchanging as the slumbering Rheingold. (laughs) Well, that's nice. Um, You know, it is interesting, the idea that even though it doesn't happen to you directly, like through our media absorption, we do a lot of living vicariously uh, through people in the media, celebrities Mm -hmm. in the the, the public eye and so forth. And then I also wonder, too, you think about how we've evolved as a species and the sort of groups we are supposed to occupy and the sort of information about said groups we would have. Like we didn't we didn't evolve to live in a continental or global society in which you could have something catastrophic occur that did not directly or potentially directly affect you. Right. I mean, yeah. So I, I almost think there there is maybe a mental switch that has to be flipped where we can, like, ignore most of the news we encounter as being like, well, that doesn't directly affect me. But for some reason, there's an emotional 
switch that you can flip where even if it doesn't directly affect your life, you, it, it's hit that emotion and now it feels like it does. It feels like it mm-hmm. happened, you know, something that happened to the president of the United States feels like it happened to the leader of your 10 person band. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess there are there are a lot of moving parts here because you can also you know draw in things like social norms and our you know intense need to fit in socially with our given survival group and so forth. Right. Maybe we can come back and speculate more on this when we finish with what the research has found. So what we have, Brown and Kulik, they say these memories they are as unchanging as the slumbering Rheingold. You just remember what happened in that moment, and it never changes the rest of your life. It is like the treasure under the under the river is that what under the water being guarded by the rhine maidens yes yes the three rhine maidens but the authors of this review paper point out that brown and kulik didn't actually have information that would justify the claim that flashbulb memories were unchanging as the rhine gold because they had nothing to compare their subjects accounts to essentially people would be prompted to recall a flashbulb memory like do you have a memory of this and then people would say, just like we've heard before, yes, I remember exactly where I was. This is how I found out. Here's what happened. Here are all the details. Now, in light of other findings in psychology that people can have the strong, genuine impression of remembering things in ways that you can prove objectively are inaccurate, some researchers started to doubt whether these flashbulb memories were actually as accurate as Brown and Kulik suggested and as accurate as people generally feel that they are in their own lives. Uh, But this would be a difficult thing to test, right? Like, what can you do? You can't follow people around 24-7 with a video camera and just wait for them to hear about a major public event and then test them on it later and compare it to the videotape. That's obviously not feasible. Mm -hmm. So while testing the true accuracy of flashbulb memories to the direct events themselves, the moment people find out about these things, that would be extremely difficult. But researchers did come up with what I think is a very clever proxy, and it's very simple. Instead of testing accuracy, they would test consistency. And so this would work on the test-retest method. So it works like this. As soon as possible after a major public event, the same day if possible, or the very next day, You give people a questionnaire asking them to narrate how they found out and answer a whole bunch of autobiographical questions about that moment. You know, where were you? How did you hear about it? Uh, Who was with you? And so forth. And then you just hold on to their answers to that to that questionnaire. And then after a delay, you give subsets of that initial sample group at different periods exactly the same questionnaire. So maybe a few days later, some people get it, maybe a few weeks later, a few months, even years down the road, and you simply compare their answers to the later uh, questionnaire to what they said immediately after the event. So what do studies of this sort reveal? Well, the results are a little bit mixed. There are a few reports supporting some broad levels of consistency after delays, But the majority of these studies have found substantial changes to flashbulb memories over time. And for the most part, we have no idea that these changes are happening in our own brains. We remember the flashbulb moment one way a year later, and it feels intensely vivid and accurate. And we are sure this is exactly how it happened. We could not be wrong, but it's not what we said happened the same day or the day after. Now, I guess you you could say it's possible that the first questionnaire is wrong, that the initial reports from right around the time of the event are are not accurate. But if there are differences between what you remember the same day or the day after and what you remember a year later, is it likely that the memory from a year later is the more accurate one? I would tend to think no. And so while consistency is different from accuracy, I think it's a decent proxy for it. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, this also brings me back to other memory-related topics we've discussed in terms of uh, retrieval errors and the idea that every time you retrieve a memory, it is susceptible to change. Uh, So frequently retrieved memories or the memories we retrieve the most are also the ones that have been augmented the most. And I can imagine you have a scenario, too. It's like, what is causing you to retrieve said memory? And the necessity of the retrieval then alters the surface of the memory retrieved, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. I think that may well play a role in what's going on here because there there are patterns of how we treat different types of autobiographical memories. And these flashbulb moments are things that may well be sort of uh, unusually rehearsed compared to other day-to-day memories. Yeah, yeah. And they could, for instance, they can be potentially um, altered by someone else retrieving said memory. Someone else telling you where they were when such and such happened. And then you retrieve your story. But maybe it's a little bit different this time. Maybe it's a little more like the one you just heard. Or it's sort of almost intentionally different in some regards compared to the one you just heard. Uh, There's so many ways you could slice it. Despite the fact that I think Brown and Kulik were wrong about these memories being accurate and unchanging, or at least being wrong about them being unchanging, they did discover something important, which was that these memories are sticky in one sense. The research reveals the memories are sticky, but they're not sticky in the way that we think they are. They're sticky in the sense that they do stick in the memory, and we recall them later with great ease of retrieval and confidence in their details and great depth of feeling about our ability to relive the moment. But they're not actually sticky in the sense of preserving the details of what happened on that day unchanged, uh, at least not as well as it feels like they do. In the words of the authors of this uh, review paper, Hurst and Phelps, quote, Brown and Kulik and researchers employing the test-retest method are discussing two different claims about forgetting. Brown and Kulik treated forgetting as a failure to have a memory. You know, somebody saying, "Ah, I can't remember anything. Whereas those employing a test-retest methodology treat forgetting as a failure to remember the past consistently. When Brown and Kulik stated that there is no forgetting, they are right in the sense that most members of the public report having a memory, even after 10 years. That's not true about a whole lot that goes on in our lives. Uh, But then the authors go on, as the test-retest work indicates, the memory may not be consistent, but it is long-lasting. I think that's a really interesting distinction they're making. Yeah, yeah. There is something about the memory that is lasting. Which raises the question, why does it last? Why does it remain stuck to the fridge of memory, even if the the details of the of the the, the note or the drawing or whatever um, have changed even substantially? I think that's a great question. So one thing I was fascinated by was details about how the memories change, like what actually changes about them. A few interesting observations they they mention. One is that there is a type of consistency that emerges in how we remember these memories, but it's not consistency to the day, to like the original event. The way they put it is once a consistency emerges in our memory of a flashbulb event, it tends to stick. So I'm just making up this example, but uh, for illustration, uh, let's say you answer a questionnaire on the day of the event saying that you uh, you heard about the event because you were up in the morning by yourself making coffee and you heard about it on the radio in the kitchen. And you can give all these details about that. And then you do the same questionnaire uh, a couple of months later or even a few weeks later. And you say you heard about it when you were stuck in traffic with your with your carpool group on the freeway on the way to work and you heard about it on the radio. What the research tends to find is people will tend to pretty consistently reproduce the second story. So you ask them again years on and they will tell the same story they told in the later questionnaire. So that one tends to stick as if it were the original one and people think it's the original one. But for some reason, there's this change that occurs early on within the first year after the event. So it's kind of like there is a a stickiness quality and a consistency quality, but what sticks is not the memory of the event itself, but the way it emerges as a narrative in your brain. Typically, Mm. it sort of they say that it finds this form within the first year after the event. And once it finds that changed form in the brain, of course, to to be fair, I want to make sure uh, I'm saying it doesn't always change. It just does in a whole lot of cases. Once it finds that changed form, it tends to change a lot less after that. So it's the inaccurate or inconsistent story that we start telling about how we remember the uh, about how we remember the event that we keep remembering for years on after that fascinating another interesting thing uh, the authors mention here is that 
The inconsistent details that emerge in later questionnaires about uh, these flashbulb events are not always like just, you know, fabricated details from out of nowhere. One common thing that happens is what they call time slice confusions. And this is essentially the tendency to remember a second or third time you found out about an event as the original time. So maybe you hear about the event on the radio and then you you say in this original questionnaire that later the same day you had a conversation with a friend about the event. A few weeks down the road, you might remember the conversation with the friend as how you found out about the event. That's interesting. Again, a lot of moving parts there, right? Because the the first version in in theory here is just like a solo discovery of uh, the event that the second one is like a social interaction and, you know, conceivably a discussion about the event with social ramifications. And then you're coming back and remembering that. To, you know, what does that mean? Does it, is it, you know, how much of it is like the power of narrative, like we were talking about? You've given it narrative form. You've given it more life and stickiness. Or is social interaction, is that something that gives it more stickiness, uh, et cetera? Yeah, it, it also strikes me as, um, though that was just a, a possible example I brought up, I mean, it, it strikes me that generally combining multiple finding out about something events into a single event is the same kind of uh it's the same kind of work like you might do when you're revising a story you've written to like condense things and to like make, make it punchier, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, it, it even applies, I think, to really unimportant things. I mean, you know, subjectively, you know, things about like, where did you discover a particular artist? Uh, you know, where did you first hear a particular song? Like, you know, the less interesting version is like, oh, I heard it a few times and I didn't like it or didn't notice it. And then finally, one day I just suddenly it sounded good. No, no, you, you you want like a more pure discovery story if you want to impress people. It's like, well, I was driving along uh, this deserted stretch of road and this song started playing. And it was like, unlike it was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. I bet this happens a lot. And this wouldn't be a flashbulb memory, but uh, I bet this same kind of streamlining of memories happens a lot in, in how people remember meeting like their partner or significant other. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people might be kind of in the social orbit of somebody and like meet them a few times and it just doesn't really make any impression. And then they have a moment where they're like, oh, here's the first time we really like talked and got to know each other. And they mm -hmm. remember that as their first meeting when it was not actually, it was just that these other earlier meetings are just not very interesting and nothing happened. So you don't actually remember you met them then. Yeah. Cause sometimes it happens like that in the movies, but more often than not, it doesn't. More often than not, you have that big dramatic moment, you know, that that sappy moment of eyes meeting across the room and the music kicks in. And on some level, yeah, you want to retell your story in, in a way that fits the myth, that fits the, um, you know, the ideal version that is presented you in, to you in popular narratives. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper 
into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So coming back to this paper, uh, studies have tried to figure out what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for the formation of flashbulb memories? When and, and under what conditions are they formed? But the goal of finding these conditions has been, is, it's proven elusive. Like it's hard to identify features common to all flashbulb type memories. Uh, so the, the researchers have asked questions like, um, is the event being consequential to a person's life? necessary or sufficient to cause a flashbulb memory? The answer seems to be no. We create flashbulb memories for things that don't personally affect us. Of course, we do also for things that do, but they don't have to affect us personally. Sometimes things that really have no tangible impact on our lives will make one of these type memories. Also, there are lots of things that have major direct impacts on our lives, and they don't elicit flashbulb memories when we find out about them. So it seems to be neither necessary nor sufficient for it to have impact on us personally. Plus, the impact is subjective, right? Because I, I can think of plenty of examples where uh, a celebrity has passed and you'll see or know people, or perhaps you are the person who has like a real significant uh, reaction to it. And sometimes it's because it lines up with something else in your personal life or it's just, you know, you're a huge fan and all that's fair. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different animal than perhaps hearing about this other celebrity that died the same week um, that you don't have a, the connection with or they don't remind you of your, your, your dad or your mom or your grandfather or something. Right. And unsurprisingly, uh, there, there's at least some research finding that people are more likely to report high confidence in the accuracy of their flashbulb memories if the central figure in the public event is someone they feel a social bond with. And that comes around to another factor influencing the formation of these memories that the researchers bring up, and that's the concept of social identity. It seems like flashbulb memories, even though they relate to finding out about public rather than personal events, are more likely to be things that somehow kind of form the story of yourself. Uh, so to read a passage from Hearst and Phelps here, quote, they play this role in part because they mark those instances during which people feel that they are part of the history of their social group. As Nicer in 1982 wrote, uh, and here they're quoting this other researcher, one, quote, recalls an occasion where two narratives that we ordinarily keep separate, the course of history and the course of our lives, were momentarily put into alignment. Details are linked between our own history and history, capital H. Flashbulb memories are the places we line up our lives with the source of history itself and say, I was there. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. Mm, yeah, yeah. 
about the the intersection of the two lines. So, yeah, we tell the story of ourselves, but sometimes there's just like the moment that connects with the event that everybody else remembers uh, the, with something that was known and, and experienced by everyone. Uh, kind of almost kind of like the Forrest Gump syndrome, you know, you just keep mm-hmm. you're, you're intersecting with known public events in history. And for some reason, we, we form these uh, feelings that we're remembering these events very strongly and they stick with us throughout our lives. Hmm, fascinating. Uh, and the authors point out interesting findings that the common feelings of a social group about a historical event may affect and alter how members of that group remember the autobiographical details uh, of learning of that event themselves. For example, uh, the authors cite one study that this is the kind of finding that it's like almost too perfect. So I wouldn't want to hang too much on this study unless similar findings were replicated all over the place. But in isolation, it is interesting. So the uh, the researchers were Bernson and Thompson in 2005, and they studied elderly Danes who had something like flashbulb memories of when they learned about the German invasion of Denmark, the, the Nazi invasion of their country in World War II. And when they learned about the German withdrawal from their country in these autobiographical memories related to these public events, the Danes were more likely to remember the weather as being worse than it was on the day they found out about the invasion uh, and to remember the weather as being better than it actually was on the day of the withdrawal. Hmm. So like these autobiographical memories are being influenced by like you know, sort of like feelings as part of a social group about the the moral valence or the positive or negative valence of what's happening in the news. Uh, finally, another feature of these these sticky memories can be illustrated in the title of a paper from 2003 by Jennifer M. Tolerico and David C. Rubin, and that title is Confidence, Not Consistency, Characterizes Flashbulb Memories. Uh, this was in Psychological Science, uh, again, that's the year 2003, uh, Hurst and Phelps write, quote, one agreed upon difference between flashbulb memories and everyday autobiographical memories, even those that are rated as important, is that confidence in flashbulb memories remains high even when consistency declines, whereas confidence in everyday autobiographical memories declines along with consistency. Uh, so does that make sense? Like the, the memories for regular events, they decline in consistency, you know, trying to remember what you had for lunch or what you talked about at work or whatever. That declines in consistency of recall over time. We remember them differently. But also for those regular events, we lose confidence in how accurate those memories are. So ironically, for normal memories, we're sort of accurately assessing that our fading memories might be wrong, whereas with these incredibly sticky flashbulb memories, we lose consistency of recall over time. They do degrade in quality, and you can show that it changes how we remember them. But we're much more likely to say in these cases with very high confidence, no, 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 it's not changing. I remember exactly how it happened. Well, yeah, the way that I, I, I recall it being uh, discussed before uh, in, in the past when I read about it was that, yeah, these these additional details, things like what what was I eating for breakfast or what did I wear that day or even, you know, some of the other things surrounding the discovery or the, you know, the or the, the hearing of the word, you um, the, the brain kind of fills in the blanks on that. Uh, they can, it's like the, there, there's something more important that has to be solidified in your memory. And therefore, it kind of like the, the memory, the rest of the memory is rushed. They're like, well, it's like there's a, a, an assembly crew in there. It's like, well, what should we put down for breakfast on this memory? It doesn't matter. Just put down anything. We can change it later. We will change it later. The important thing is that this terrible thing happened or this great thing happened and they heard about it. And uh, I was and yeah, there. Yeah, and and that you were that, that they were there, and that they they are part of it. I like this idea that it's like yeah, it's like the, uh, capital H history and lowercase H history converging. Like in a way, it's you know it's 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 defining self in comparison to the larger group. You know, perhaps you can also throw in the you know vital survival uh, information as well. Something terrible happened, and it has to be remembered because I want slash need to avoid terrible things. Um, but yeah, the, the the details are not as important. It's that uh, it's it's that central detail uh, that has to be recorded. 
Right. That moment of finding out feels entirely like you can recreate it in your mind right now. But there's a good chance that if you had written down what happened that day and you compared it to what you remember now, it would be different. Mm. And so a question would be, why are we so confident about the accuracy of our flashbulb memories when research shows that, you know, you can show that they're not as accurate as we think they are? And uh, this is hard to say. The authors point out, you know, there's a general finding about memory that, quote, vividness, elaborateness and ease of retrieval are thought to influence the judgment that an event occurred. So. If you can make the details of a memory really vivid, you know, you can just see them in your mind. And if you can add lots of details and if you can make the memory come to mind without much effort, people have more confidence that the memory is accurate, even if it's not. And this would apply to other memory, other types of memories, too. And there just may be features of flashbulb memories that incubate these qualities of vividness, elaborateness, and uh, an ease of retrieval, maybe because they come up often in conversation, or maybe because of this, maybe it has something to do about this, yeah, this intersection or connection point with, with history more broadly that, that causes us to almost kind of like write them out as, an, as a detailed story in the mind in a way that you don't do for most other events, even important events. Yeah, and then you end up having high confidence in this narrative that is ultimately, you know, can be, you know, defining of yourself. And so, of course, you're going to have confidence in it, uh, because what happens when you don't have confidence in the in the autobiographical stories that define who you are? I mean, you end up like, I guess, you know, at least like me, because I feel like every time we we cover these uh, these memory topics, I kind of it, 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 it forces a lot of self reflection on the memories that do define me, you know, and I, I think back on them as like, well, you know, to what extent is that what happened? And then to what extent does it matter if it's not like you have to sort of face the, uh, the, the fact that, you know, all memories are potentially uh, incorrect to some degree. Right. And, you know, it, it, I want to come back on the other hand and say that all these studies about the, the faultiness of memory they don't mean that, like, none of your memories are accurate. You know, probably a lot of your memories are basically accurate. The point is that they're not as reliable as they feel. Yeah, like, there's, there's a, a lot of truth in your memories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's just, like, there's a decent chance that you remember a lot of things with high confidence, and, in fact, it didn't happen that way. Yeah. But plenty of things did happen more or less the way you remember them. Yeah, I mean, and it cuts both ways, right? I mean, it can you can certainly have a memory that is more traumatic because— it has been made more traumatic through recall and through, you know, the way that it is ultimately embellished through memory. But other times, like you remember something with, with kind of rose tinted glasses, you know, you remember the, the fun part of a particular vacation as opposed to the, you know, the minor uh, squabbles that may have accompanied the endeavor. Right. Oh, and because so one thing this brings up is that uh, with flashbulb memories, because they often involve these these public events that are negative in quality that could lead people to the to the erroneous assumption that flashbulb memories work the same way like traumatic memories of mm -hmm. firsthand events work. And that's not necessarily true. We, we don't know the extent to which there are similarities and differences there fully. Firsthand traumatic memories, I think, are going to be governed by possibly some different things than these flashbulb memories are. Uh, but that also brings us to this question that you brought up earlier that I think is a good one. A few studies have looked at flashbulb memories elicited by positive public events. Uh, you know, follow the Berlin Wall. A lot of people who remember that see that as a positive thing or, you know, maybe World Cup victories for your home country or something. But most of these studies look at negative events. And that probably just has a lot to do with, like, the nature of big public events in the news. Uh, you know, there's more often a big negative event than a big positive event, at least in in how it's covered in the media. So mm -hmm. if we had more investigations of big public positive events, do you think there would be any major differences in memory responses or would it be pretty much the same thing? Yeah, I guess one of the I mean, one of the problems is just like the the, the negative, the catastrophic um, headlines are the ones that like instantly come to mind. Like when, when you try to, I, I have trouble just thinking of, of significant good news events that would have that kind of magnitude. They, like, yeah. they would have to be, you know, you know, things like the, 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 you know, the end of major wars, the, um, um, you know, just overwhelmingly good news. 
And yeah. it seems like that's, moon landing, yeah, maybe moon landing, moon landing, moon landing yeah. is a good one. Yeah. This might just be a fact of reality that good news is stuff that tends to develop gradually over time. And then you can sort of discover it retrospectively. You can be like, oh, something very good happened over the last 25 years gradually. Mm -hmm. Whereas bad news often tends to happen all at once. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right, though. It's like the, the way we retrospectively um, evaluate the importance of a moment is key. And, um, yeah, it's it is. And is there like this one moment that really like rings out as opposed to like a, a gradual swelling? Right. Like if you're trying to remember a public person, if it's a person you have positive feelings about, the good things they did are probably like a whole career of good things that mm -hmm. developed gradually and you could develop an appreciation for it. It didn't happen one day, but they might they die on one day. Right. It, it punctuates this lifetime of achievements or contributions, et cetera, uh, you know, forces you to reflect on those and value those often, you know, value those even more um, while also feeling, you know, this at, at very least intense bittersweetness regarding the whole situation where you realize, oh, I loved all these albums that, say, David Bowie put out. Uh, mm -hmm. I liked the last album, but I didn't know it was going to be the last album. And now I do. Uh, so, you know, a lot of a lot of emotions to feel about those moments. So there we go. Flashbulb memories. Actually very sticky, but not in the way people think they are. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, illusory stickiness, maybe. Um, so uh, so I, I thought that was very interesting. And um, maybe we can come back to other types of uh, sticky memories and sticky memory research in the future. Absolutely. I think we will, you know, we'll, we'll always come back to memory-based topics. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, for the last little bit here, I want to bring it back to physical stickiness. Uh, I thought it might be interesting to think about sticky substances, specifically glues and adhesives in history. Um, the most crucial sticky substance to consider in all of this is plant resin. 
Uh, plant resin is exuded by some trees and other plants, such as uh, fir and pine trees in particular. Uh, and most resin trickles out in response to injury of some sort to the tree or plant in question. These, uh, these resins are not soluble in water, and they typically lose volatile compounds via evaporation, leaving behind a soft residue that is initially soluble but becomes insoluble as it ages. Okay? Initially, however, it's viscous, it's sticky, and uh, if you don't already have like the smell memory in your nostrils, well, then if you're of, if you're of a certain age, then perhaps you remember uh, a key scene in 1989's uh, Christmas Vacation starring Chevy Chase. <laughs> There's a scene where he has just cut down a Christmas tree and it, now he, it's the evening. He's uh, laying in bed next to his wife, played play by Beverly D'Angelo. And um, Chevy Chase is like messing around with a, with a, with a magazine. He's trying to and then he's trying to turn off the light and his fingers are sticking to everything because it's, they're covered with tree resin. This is a great scene because it's not the point of the scene. It's he's just happening in the background that every time he touches a magazine page, it tears off on his fingers. Yeah. I myself have uh, vivid memories, which may or may not be accurate to reality, um, of being a kid and climbing on pine trees in, uh, I guess, on around the playground at my school and getting uh sap or resin, whatever it is from the tree, stuck to my hands and to my arms, actually. I remember it going mm -hmm. up my wrists and stuff. And uh, uh, again, may or may not be accurate, but what I remember is that it was really, really difficult to wash off. Like you'd rub it with water and soap and it would just stay on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just very sticky stuff where, yeah, if you're, if you're horsing around in the woods at all, you're going to encounter it at some point. And you may wonder, like, if, will this ever come off? Um, and, you know, eventually it does. Uh, anyway, yeah, and as far as Christmas Vacation goes, a lot of broad comedy in that movie, uh, but that's kind of like one of the nice scenes of more subtle comedy that I always liked. Uh, though I guess it gets a little broad towards the end of that, that, that <laughs> sequence when they're knocking over the lamp and so forth, and her, his hand gets stuck to her hair. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I just remember them. Am, am I remembering this right? Like he touches the magazine pages and they just tear off on his yeah, fingers? Yeah, okay. yeah. Now, speaking of movies from the 80s and 90s, if you've ever seen a little film titled Jurassic Park from 1993, then you know the basics of what I'm going to talk about next. Insects and other organic bits winding up stuck in the, the tree resin and uh, eventually becoming amber. A whole host of insects were trapped in this way and later discovered by humans includes flies, lice, beetles, ants, butterflies, and moths. Amber has also been found to contain spiders, webbing, uh, frogs, crustaceans, hair, feathers, all sorts of stuff. It's nature's museum display case. Yeah, it's just, I mean, coming back to what happens, you imagine a scenario where a tree is, is injured one way or another, by another organism, by, you know, something falling into it, etc. And things live on the trees, things come into contact with the, with the trees, and then they get caught in it. They, they may overflow them and then ultimately preserve them. Now, it is of note uh, on the, the whole Jurassic Park idea, the idea of DNA extraction from a mosquito in amber, as seen in Jurassic Park. Uh, this seems to remain unrealized despite uh, some starts and stops and actual scientific attempts to, to do just this, uh, contamination by modern DNA seems to have played a role in some of the false positives that have popped up. Uh, examples, you know, where scientists have, have come forward with a study and said, we've, we've done it. We've been able to successfully retrieve DNA in one form or another from the contents of this amber. Uh, and I believe in those cases, it tends to be a situation where you actually have modern DNA that has contaminated the results. Mm. I sort of hesitate to say this because I didn't double check before we recorded, but I think there would be a real problem trying to extract DNA from uh, like dinosaur era insects in amber like they do in Jurassic Park just because the DNA molecule degrades too much over time for it to last that long. But maybe you could feasibly get DNA from an insect in amber from more recent times. Yeah, apparently the, there's still some scientific debate about how long DNA can survive in different settings. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess it's a never-say-never never situation. Some scientists continue to pursue this angle for potential ancient DNA retrieval. And, of course, ancient covers a lot of ground. Uh, in 2020, scientists actually succeeded in pulling insect DNA from amber, though the amber in question was from 2014. <laughs> uh, common era 2014, to be clear. Okay. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not... 
not a not a not a home run, not a not a touchdown or what have you, but um, you know, it's something to go on. Now, as a as a as a tangent, I was looking around about ancient DNA retrieval, and I got kind of interested in a few different um, uh, different different angles on this. And uh, a 2022 paper, uh, the, the title caught my uh, my attention. It was from the journal Molecular Biology and Evolution, titled "Ancient Human Genomes and Environmental DNA." And the cement attaching two thousand year old head lice nets, uh, mm-hmm. and this uh, paper indeed explored to what extent quote host DNA is protected by the cement that glues head lice nets to the hair of ancient Argentinian mummies, uh, fifteen hundred to two thousand years old. Wow, this is my kind of study. What what do they find? Well, they, the the findings suggest that ectoparasitic lice sheaths may prove to be a reasonable tool in ancient DNA retrieval. So stickiness strikes again here. Like there's this idea that, um, uh, you know, as, as we're trying to, again, uh, you know, ongoing debate about to what extent DNA survives and where it can survive in what conditions. Uh, this study indicates that, yeah, the place to look might be these nits, these little places where, where lice have used their glue uh, to, to uh, you know, to hold eggs in place. Beautiful. Though, of course, one can't help but go in a sci-fi direction with all of this and imagine half-lice, half-human mummy hybrids shambling out of the cloning tanks, you know, uh, where it's like, we did it. We cloned the mummies. Oh, we forgot about all that lice DNA. I am Brundle lice. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, Amber has managed to preserve insect activity. Uh, you know, we have examples of mating, examples of egg laying, uh, parasitism, swarming behavior. Um just a few examples of the things where we can look and say, okay, not only do we see a particular species, not only do we see this snapshot in time of what the organism looked like, sometimes we can make out behavior. Um, You know, we can also sometimes make out key details about individual structures. Uh, I believe some of this has come up on the show before. Um, You know, what did this particular type of insect's head look like? Uh, What did its uh, particular, you know, feeding apparatus look like millions of years ago? Uh, Structural color is another thing that is uh, sometimes uh, preserved and uh, and can be analyzed. And, you know, we're talking about specimens from uh, from as long ago as like 230 million years. Okay, so whether or not Amber can successfully preserve the DNA molecule intact enough over time, it can certainly preserve macroscopic uh, objects, structures, and almost like scenes or dioramas in some case. Yeah. So something that is physically sticky ends up preserving, creating a kind of like sticky physical memory for humans to um, contemplate uh, in the far future. Interesting. Now, speaking of, of prehistoric stickiness, uh, speaking of the ancients and sap, I thought we might turn to the oldest manufactured glue that we know of in human history, and that's birch bark tar. This is created by heating birch bark via, I think there are four different methods that are, uh, that are generally recognized. Uh, I was reading about this in a 2019 paper by uh, Nikas et al. published in the journal Anthropology. Uh, according uh, to these authors, there's condensation method, there's ash mound method, there's pit and vessel method, and there's raised structure method, which involves an earthen mound containing a vessel and screen. Um, those are in order of complexity as well. And the more complex, the greater the yield. So my understanding uh, based on this is like, yeah, if you're using the condensation method, you would have to do so much more of it to get the same amount of birch bark tar that you would get using the raised structure method. Mm. So birch bark tar use dates back to the Paleolithic period. Our ancestors used it um, to uh, haft tools, to decorate objects. But this wasn't only a technology of Homo sapiens. Uh, this was, this really, I found this really fascinating. Archaeological evidence shows that Neanderthals, our extinct evolutionary cousins, also used it and seem to have produced it using it on at least some of their tools. I don't think all of them, but uh, we have found Neanderthal artifacts where they used this tar to um, construct their tools. And they use some of the more complex methods of deriving the birch bark tar. Ah, so like higher up the list of four? Yeah, yeah. So they weren't just using the most primitive version of it, uh, which which I think is also pretty, you know, potentially insightful about... uh, about who the Neanderthals were and what they were up to. And I think in general, whether you're talking about 
prehistoric humans or, Neander- or Neanderthals. It's it's easy for a lot of us, you know, certainly without deeper knowledge of actual tool construction, you know, and methods of tool construction, specifically in prehistoric times, to assume that, you know, everything was lashed together, right? Everything kind of looked like there's kind of an image of a Stone Age tool that may enter your mind and it involves like a you know, something kind of wedged in wood, maybe strapped with some hide in, 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 in wood. And you don't think about how important adhesive technology was and has never stopped being. We talked about this in our invention episode on chewing gum, I believe. But the, uh, the Iceman Otzi, the uh, 4th millennium BCE Stone Age mummy who was preserved in a glacier in the Italian Alps, uh, was discovered in the early 1990s. Otzi, so many fascinating things about Otzi, but one of which was he carried with him this copper axe. And the copper axe, uh, the the blade of the axe was secured to the uh, to the handle with uh, multiple means. It did have some wrapping of leather straps like you were talking about, but it also was glued in place using birch bark tar adhesives mm. made from the birch tree. Also in that episode, we talked about a paper called Chewing Tar in the Early Holocene um, <laughs> that was about uh, indications that lumps of birch bark tar had been chewed. And the idea is like, okay, was this being used as like chewing gum in the ancient world? Or maybe maybe was chewing on it a way of treating it so that it could be used in the creation of tools? Yeah, I remember this discussion now. Um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Uh, again, it's so easy to dismiss the importance of adhesives, the importance of glues and sticky things, you know. But I mean, it makes sense too because again, humans would have gone out into the world. They got sticky. They got sticky things on them, and everything that they encountered, they you know inevitably asked the question: Can I use this? Is this of use to me? How can I combine this with other things to create useful things? And of course, uh, sticky is going to play an important role there. And it, you know, it factors into construction. Obviously, we already talked a bit. Of, we talked about mud bricks in previous episodes. We talked about sticky rice mortar earlier in this series. But there are also plenty of other methods of construction out there. Like one that uh, I was reading about is wattle and daub. Um, which, uh, you know, sounds like uh, an interesting law firm or something. But uh, no, this is where you have woven flexible branches called wattle, and they're essentially daubed up with a sticky combination of such materials as mud and clay and possibly dung. Uh, you know, not all that different, I guess, in some respects than, you know, compared to, to mud bricks. But, um, but, but again, another construction m- method, another recipe for building something that involves using something that is sticky. Uh, and of course, if you get we get back into the problem of the word sticky and just how vague it is, I mean, basically that can bring in any kind of like plaster scenario, mortar scenario, brick making scenario and more. Now, I have to say, I really wanted to end it on a monster here. I was like, there's got to be a nice sticky monster out there. And perhaps there is one and I just didn't have time to, to find it. I got really excited when I discovered a Japanese yokai known as Beto Beto-san, which is sometimes translated as Mr. Sticky, though this ultimately doesn't really hold up because apparently the more accurate translation is Mr. Footsteps. Um, This is the connection I think only makes sense within um, the Japanese language. But basically, this is a yokai that follows people around at night on dark streets and you hear his footfalls. So it's like they, you know, the whole idea is just the sound of being followed in the dark or the potential of being followed in the dark. It doesn't actually have anything to do with like a super sticky ghost creature, uh, much to my dismay. Bummer. I wish it was a monster with like sticky hands, like the sticky hand toy. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if, if if anyone out there can think of any sticky monsters, especially as we get into our our Halloween festivities here. Uh, let us know. I guess you could you could talk about the xenomorph to some extent. It didn't like sticking people to walls and in walls. Um, uh, yeah, it secreted a st- you never really see it secreting that stuff, do you? You, you see the you see the caustic blood. Um I wonder, do you think it's only the queen that secretes all of that, that sticky material that cocoons the people? I don't know if, if it has. So I, I know this varies. There's no like hard canon on this, but I guess you have like the warrior xenomorphs. You have the queen xenomorph. Do you have like some sort of like construction drone type 
xenomorph or would that be done by the warriors? Like who's building that elaborate nest? Like she's busy creating eggs, right? That yeah. if we're going to compare it to, you know, like say um, ant and termite models, um, you know, her role is very specific within the, the hive and you must have some other classification of, um, of the species that's busy building these things and secreting stuff and sticking people in walls after, um, you know, they've, uh, after an egg has been positioned in the proximity. That's right. R Ripley famously asks an alien, so who's laying the eggs? But I have a secondary question. So who's secreting the gunk? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. We need, that's, the, that's what we need for the next alien film. Let's really dive down into who's secreting here. It must be something we haven't seen yet. Ooh. A whole, a whole movie about the most boring member of the, but, but scientifically interesting member of the Xenomorph Hive. I'm in. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it up there. But hey, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, what are your thoughts on stickiness? Can you think of a sticky monster uh, in general? Oh, and sticky memories. Well, you know, this is something we can all relate to. So I'm, I'm hoping we'll hear from a lot of folks on that. Also, like I just said, we're getting into the Halloween season here. And we're going to quickly be, uh, you know, putting together a loose outline of what we're going to be covering uh, but now's a great time if you have something particular in mind or if you want to remind us of something we said we'd cover in the past but didn't, uh, uh, then, uh, yeah, write in. We'd love to hear from you. A reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, listener mail on Monday, short-form artifact or monster fact on Wednesday, and on Friday we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.